Hey, it's Nathan, and this is day 84 of the Bible in 90 Days, and we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 through Galatians chapter 3. In 2 Corinthians, we find Paul writing again to the church in Corinth. Let's get started. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, after his opening greeting, Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Several lines later, Paul says that in Asia they were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Paul proceeds to inform the church that his plan to visit Corinth had not gone as expected. And this continues into 2 Corinthians 2, where he references his previous letter. I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. He then encourages the church to forgive the offenders, but also has a specific person in mind as he writes, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. He then relates a disappointment experienced in Troas. He could not find Titus and then writes, But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. 2 Corinthians 3, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. A few lines down, Paul makes this important observation. God has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He then observes, Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4 begins with Paul declaring, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Yes, they have faced challenges. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. At the same time, however, Paul declares with confidence, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, 
but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Through their suffering, the life of Jesus was also revealed. Paul articulated that the light and momentary troubles he and his fellow missionaries have suffered were achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Second Corinthians 5 finds Paul between two places. While we are in this tent or body, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. For the next several lines, Paul continues to acknowledge this tension between living on earth and being with the Lord, and then declares, So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Then, some verses down, Paul writes these magnificent words, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Those who have thus been reconciled to Christ are given the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 6 finds Paul appealing to the Corinthians to open wide your hearts also, just as he and his fellow missionaries had done. Then Paul warns, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? 2 Corinthians 7, by the way, a chapter well worth reading, gives us insight into Paul's deep love for the believers in Corinth. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. While they had been in great distress while in Macedonia, the arrival of Titus had brought wonderful news from Corinth about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Then Paul acknowledges he had once regretted the first letter he sent, because it really hit the church hard. However, on learning of their repentance, he no longer regretted it, because your sorrow led you to repentance. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. The chapter ends with Paul talking about how richly blessed Titus had been by how the church in Corinth had received him. 2 Corinthians 8 begins, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. 
In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. As Paul speaks of generosity, he points to Jesus. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He then encourages the church to finish the work of giving liberally, which they had begun the year before. Not so that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. After expounding briefly on this idea of equality, Paul proceeds to explain in some detail how he and his companions had arranged to ensure the safe and wise handling of all the contributions that would be given by sending Titus, along with a highly respected companion, to receive and transport the funds, ultimately headed for Jerusalem. 2 Corinthians 9 finds Paul continuing his explanation, especially noting his reason for sending Titus ahead. I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. The rest of the chapter is devoted to encouraging the believers to give generously and includes these lines. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 10 begins with an appeal. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. Paul then goes on to explain that the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. The entire chapter is an apologetic for Paul and his fellow missionaries. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. And these lines, we are not going too far in our boasting, neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. 2 Corinthians 11 finds Paul expressing his deep concern that the believers in Corinth will be easily swayed by someone who preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached. Paul acknowledges that he may be untrained as a speaker, yet contends, I do have knowledge. He then continues to defend his love for the church in Corinth, seeking to undermine false apostles, deceitful workers masquerading as apostles of Christ, who were trying to steer the church away from the gospel. These false apostles were masquerading as servants of righteousness. Their end, however, will be what their actions deserve. Paul then dips into a bit of sarcasm, or as he refers to it, being a fool. Behaving for effect by boasting of his apostolic qualifications. 
Here are a few lines, for example. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. However, after extended bragging, again to make a point, he writes, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, by the way, a chapter well worth reading, continues his boasting. Again, to make a point. Then he comes back around to the idea of boasting about his weakness, telling how God has taken steps to keep him humble, stating, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. The chapter continues to the very end, with Paul expressing his deep, unwavering love for the Corinthian church. For example, So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. And this, we have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. And everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. In the final lines, Paul expresses his deep concern. I am afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. 2 Corinthians 13 contains Paul's final warnings, primarily reinforcing what he's already written. He hopes that when he comes to the church again, he may not have to be harsh in his use of authority. The chapter ends with final greetings and then these words to close both the chapter and the letter. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Next, we find ourselves in Galatians, a letter to the churches in Galatia. Galatians 1 begins with a brief yet beautiful greeting, and then Paul gets down to business. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. As in his second letter to the Corinthian church, Paul is again confronting false teachers who are working hard to undermine the gospel, undoing the hard-fought gains of Paul and his fellow missionaries. After calling the church to account for the rapidity with which they had turned their back on the gospel, Paul informs his audience, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Following this assertion, he gives a detailed account of how his understanding of the gospel had developed noting that after receiving his call to proclaim the gospel of Jesus, his immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Galatians 2 begins with Paul continuing the story surrounding the development of his ministry and theology. 
and then getting back to the issue of false believers who had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. Although, as Paul informs his readers, we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. He then informs his readers that those who held authority in the church, a reference to church leaders in Jerusalem, he mentions James Cephas, that is Peter, and John specifically, had recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised. Paul then turns to an incident in Antioch where he had confronted Cephas, that again is Peter, for unfaithfulness to the gospel by giving in to the prejudiced behavior of some visiting Jewish Christians. In his rebuke of Cephas, Paul declared, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. With these words, Paul was affirming the truth of the gospel, which, by his actions, Cephas was denying that we are justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Galatians 3 returns firmly to the issue in the church in Galatia. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? He then argues carefully that righteousness is achieved by faith, not law-keeping, pointing to Abraham as his example. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He also noted starkly that all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Then he speaks to the promise of the Messiah. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Then Paul addresses the lingering question, Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. He also asserts, The law was our guardian, until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. And that's all for today.